Romans 9, verses 19, and we're going to read down to verse 24. So Romans 9, verses 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Lord, thank you for your word that pierces through the heart of man. Father, this text is, is at first glance, it might seem a little complicated, Father. So I pray that today would be really focused in on the sermon to understand this text better together. And it will be edified. And through that experience, you will be glorified, Father. Lord, I just thank you so much for this church family. I thank you so much for all the things that you've done. And Lord, right now, I lift up our president to you, Lord. No matter where you stand politically, if you are a Christian, you should be lifting up. We should be lifting up our president, Lord. He is sick. So, Lord, I pray for healing on him today. I pray that the medicines would work. I pray that the doctors would be wise. And I pray that even him would make smart decisions, not only for himself, but also for the nation. Lord God, I just pray for his wife as well. I pray that through this, if they do get healed, that they would give you the glory and that they would recognize that healing comes from you. And if you don't heal them, Lord, we trust you. But Lord, I pray for their salvation more so than I do their health. If you don't heal them or if you do heal them, I pray that you would expose yourself to them and that they will know you today. The Bible says that many will say to you, Lord, Lord, and not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, I pray when, when our president says, Lord, Lord, that his heart is transformed, that his tongue and his words are transformed, and that he shocks not only the United States, but he shocks the world. Father, I pray that through this sickness that he's experiencing, I pray for such revival, such awakening for the advancement of your kingdom. Please, Lord God, please, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. Today, we are going to be uh, talking about pottery, making pottery. There are several places in the scripture, including the uh, current text that we're looking at. The plans and the creations of God are likened to the making of a clay pot. 
The thing about a, a potter and his clay is simply that the potter, not just that the potter is creative, but that the clay is not. The clay is molded into whatever the shape the potter wants to create. The idea that the begins in the, the potter's mind, he, he begins to think about what he wants created, and then it is put into action through the potter's hands and his feet. Now, perhaps the best-known passage comes to us from Jeremiah 18 that speaks about the potter. And there we read the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. So he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. You know, often... If you happen to uh, approach a potter at the beginning of his handiwork, you would have no idea what it was going to be created. Even when the potter has actually begun to shape that blob of clay, it takes a few minutes for the shape to begin to be recognizable. He might even start with what looks like one shape, then press it down in order to make it become what he wants it to be. Sometimes the clay seems to take on a mind of its own. And the potter has to readjust things in order to save the design that he was working on. Isaiah addresses the people of Israel concerning that very thing in Isaiah 29. He says, you turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded on the, as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah then goes on in chapter 64. And in chapter 64, he says this, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay. You are the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. In this description, we're reminded that God alone works us into whatever design he has in mind. As the potter alone, God is actually the one in control of our lives. And that is the point of our text in Romans 9. If the potter is a professional, while it may seem at times that the clay has a mind of its own, the, the, the potter is guiding all that happens. And finally, that clay takes on a shape. And the watcher goes, oh, I, I think I know what that's going to be. But not until the potter has added all the finishing touches do you really See his workmanship. The potter has taken a, a blob of dirt, breathed into it a, a living memorial, an object that showcases the creative mind and talent of his hands. And when he's finished, it's not what the clay wanted. For the clay would have been satisfied with just staying as clay in the ground. But rather... The potter has created a piece of handiwork that reveals his glory. And so the theme of our passage today boils down to this thought, that God has the right, as a potter, to showcase his glory. God has the right to showcase his glory 
as a potter has the right to make of that clay whatever he desires. You know, it's, it's really sinful human nature to challenge God, and yet we do it all the time. Challenging God is, is really foolish when you think about it. As the psalmist declared, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And in a sense, that's what we're doing when we challenge what God is doing in our lives. Throughout the book of Romans so far, we have noticed the restrictions on human comprehension. Those restrictions are extensive. When you consider that God is God. And as we said last week, we are not. No human being can comprehend the wisdom of God. But we certainly try, don't we? We always try to figure out what God is doing in our lives and and why these things have happened. Remember the words I read earlier from Isaiah 29, where he says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? We would laugh at the idea that clay could talk back to the person that's creating. And yet, we don't laugh because we see it all the time in movies. Toy Story toys talk and act, and nobody knows that they're doing that. They move around by themselves without human control. Artificial intelligence takes over the world in movies like The Matrix and iRobot. Those are still movies, though, aren't they? Except in claymation. Clay doesn't talk, and it doesn't think. But we're clay. And we talk, and we think. We are made from the dust of the ground. And God breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul. We are then more like Pinocchio. Puppets that have been given life. And like Pinocchio, we want to run our own lives. To think that we're not fully in control would leave us speechless. And then we would challenge God. As verse 19 in our text says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul, in the following verses that were just read, answers both parts of that riddle. Does God have the right to find fault with us? That's the first part of the riddle. And do people have the ability to resist his will? That's the second part of that question. Well, let's begin with the first part of the question. We need to recognize the resistance of God's plan. Resisting God's plan seems to be part of what it means to be human. Paul very clearly has established that we, as human beings... We sin. We rebel against God. We resist God on all occasions. Human beings consistently, from the time of birth, have said, 
We want to rule our own lives. Even those who believe in God are constantly raising the question, why? Why? Have you ever read the Psalms? How many of you have read Psalms? At least some of the Psalms, maybe not all the way through. Uh, one of the things that you see constantly in the Psalms is that question. Why? I mean, the, uh, the, the psalmist in, in Psalm 10 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Well, then we have Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. It sort of sounds like the uh, prophets of Baal and Asherah on the, uh, the mountain with Elijah, right? You know, cut themselves. Wake up, wake up, God! Where are you? And the quotes go on throughout the Psalms. Perhaps the greatest questioner, however, was Job. It seemed like Job had constant questions of why for God. He couldn't understand why God would allow so much evil in the world. He questioned God's justice. He questioned God's compassion. He questioned God's power. And then we have the prophet Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk had that same issue. He wrote in his first chapter, he said, You who are of purer eyes, he's talking about God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You see, it seems to be human nature for us to question God. To challenge what God is doing and why he is doing it. But who are we challenging? We're challenging the God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. We're saying that that God has somehow messed up in your life, or in mine. Which is why Paul asks in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? No wonder God began his dialogue with Job with a very similar question to that. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, you're asking why, you're challenging why I'm doing what I'm doing in this world, but you don't have the knowledge to even be able to ask that question. And God goes through the book of Job, those final chapters, to show Job just how little he really knew. Why? 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 That seems to be the question on our minds all the time when it comes to God. Why? Well, let's flip the question around and let's ask, why not? What would you do differently if you had been God or if you were God now? What would you do differently? How would you have created the world? In a way different than the way that God created it? Would you have made people without the ability to choose so that they wouldn't sin? Would you allow sinners to sin without restricting them in any way? Would you let the wicked go unpunished? Would you not save anyone? 
Would you have simply destroyed the world when Adam and Eve rebelled against you? According to Scripture, God's plan is the only reasonable plan. And so we need to recognize the reasonableness of God's plan. He alone knows what is right. Since God is perfect in knowledge and in wisdom, in power, compassion, and justice, his plan is a perfect plan, perfectly reasonable. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was there agonizing just before his crucifixion, acknowledged that when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Yet in our smugness, we dare to ask the questions. We dare to challenge God. Verse 20 continues and says, Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? And yet we do, all the time. Abraham had it right when he addressed the Lord as they looked over at Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made a telling statement. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If it be possible. In other words, what he's saying, God, if there's another way. If there is a different way. If there is a better way. Let's not go through with this cross thing. Is there any other way? But if not. Not my will, but yours. And the cross occurred. The death of Jesus Christ on that cross happened. Why? Because it was the most reasonable plan. God in his perfect wisdom. So Jesus says, In my human mind, I don't like going to a cross. I don't want to have to suffer in that way. But not my will, but yours, the God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. You are eternal, and you alone know what is best. You know, if you want to grasp why God has the right to judge the world, which is what this passage is all about, to save some and to condemn some, then you need to take a few moments and reflect back on the opening chapters of Genesis. How does God have the right to choose whom to save and whom to condemn? Notice that it is by the right of divine creation. He is God, and we are not. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth, and he took some dust and he fashioned that dust into a man, just like we saw the fashioning a few minutes ago by the potter. He fashioned into a man, and the scripture says he breathed into that man the breath of life. And then he took a rib from that man and he formed a woman, and he gave her life, and he said, what I have created is very good. And so it is his right as the divine creator, the one who, who has made it all and done it all well, to judge those who have messed up what he has created. Or as Paul puts it in verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay? Of course he does. On what grounds would you challenge God's right? Consider the original purpose for which God created the human race. We see that, that God created us to reflect His glory. And so we need to notice and recognize that we are the reflection of His glory. You know what God says in Genesis 1 as He was preparing to create the human race? He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, male and female, he created them. Now, that's an incredible thought, to be created after the image of God. God created the human race as a mirror to reflect his glory in the midst of this world, just as the moon reflects the glory of the sun. But if you want to ask the right question about why God did what he did, you should be asking not why do you condemn, but why do you save? You see, humanity has rebelled, all of us, from Adam and Eve to the baby that was born two seconds ago. All of us have entered into a covenant of rebellion against God. We say in our hearts, forget God. Let my glory be seen. And so we, as humans, deserve condemnation. We've been saying that all the way through the book of Romans. We haven't stopped. But we should be asking, not why do you condemn but why do you save? Why do you save anyone, God? Why do you take the time and the effort to save us? Why the humiliation and the sending of your son and then the crucifixion? Why, God, would you do that? And Paul answers that question in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? God chose to fulfill his purpose in the human race by recreating some of us to fulfill what we were created to do, to reflect his glory. That's an incredible thought as well. God chose a lump of clay and he turned it into a diamond necklace. How? Why? For his glory alone. That's it. 
And so as we consider that, we need to recognize that we are the remaking of His glory as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. Have you ever watched an individual to whittles take a, just a piece of wood, any piece of wood, and they slowly begin to form that piece of wood into something beautiful, maybe a little eaglet like this. And no, I did not do this. <laughs> I wish. But something like that, or maybe a dolphin, right? Maybe a flower. I like to take a piece of sand each year, a pile of it, big piles of it, actually, and create some kind of rough sculpture from it. Uh, maybe a Thomas engine, or Aslan the lion, um, an NASCAR race car, or even a very huge Nemo. Those are just some of the things that I've done over the years. Somehow, sometimes, however, the potter with his clay, the first effort is marred. So the potter has to start over, and he reforms that clay. In some cases, the beautiful bowl that he was making collapses, and so he starts over, and he forms it into something different. Maybe he intended to make a beautiful platter, but the clay was too soft, and it, it collapsed, and so he remakes that lump into something else instead. Paul has said that is what God has done with the human race. He created us to reflect his glory as his image bearers, but sin corrupted the whole of humanity. So God remade us, some to reflect the beauty of his grace and mercy, and some to reflect his wrath and justice. If God saved every person, then it would appear that sin was no big thing. And that's what's happening in the streets of New York right now. Our government has passed a law against bail, so a person commits a crime, they're processed and then sent right back out into the streets without having to post bail. And due to COVID, many of the prisoners have been set free and put back out on the streets. And that's why our crime is way up. Murder have already surpassed the 2019 numbers. And that's not counting March and the first part of April where crime was mostly non-existent. God has to remake the messed up clay or he has to destroy it. And he has chosen to do some of both. Just as a potter took that collapsed bowl and smashed it down, God has chosen to bring his judgment against all sinfulness and wickedness of humanity. And just as he destroyed the world by the flood in the days of Noah, and just as he sent fire from heaven to consume the five cities of the plains in the days of Lot and Abraham, and just as he sent Israel into the promised land to destroy the wicked Canaanites, so God has said that he will judge all human beings who have set themselves up against him. And yet for his glory and for his praise, he's also determined to remake some into his image all of us deserve to be crushed, but instead he has chosen some for salvation that his mercy and his grace might be known. At tremendous cost, God took that marred clay and refashioned some into the image of his son. And that's what Paul means in verse 21. 
He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of that same lump vessels for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And the answer is, yes, he does. Remember, God made us very good. We are the ones who rebelled. We're the ones who turned every one to his own way. God was left, in a sense, then, with a dilemma. What, do we do, what does he do with us? Should he destroy us all? Or should he save some? And in his mercy, he chose to save some. To remake us into a beautiful reflection of himself, of his character and his nature the glorious reflection of his son, Jesus Christ. Those who question God's justice then miss the miracle of the restraint of eternal condemnation. I've said it many times as we've studied Romans, but has it really settled into your brains that none of us deserve salvation? We all deserve to be condemned. No one deserves to have right because no one is good. None righteous. We are all just as guilty of the crucifixion of the Son of God as was Pilate, the governor, or Annas, the high priest. And yet, he still has chosen to save some. And that's what we see in verse 24. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is referring back to the golden chain that we saw back in chapter 8. That those that he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those that he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. Yesterday, some of us were at the Evergreen Cemetery for the interment of our dear brother, Greg Wachowski. We were able to rejoice that he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. Why? Because God chosen to save some. And so we need to recognize that we ought to be rejected. And Greg would have been the first one to tell you he did not deserve eternal life. None of us do. You know, some people say that no one creates something to destroy it. But I disagree. Even some things that are made of clay are specifically designed for destruction. Consider clay pigeons. We're about to see the world record holder shoot 12 clay pigeons at one time. <laughs> That's the world record. Twelve clay pigeons. He throws them up. Boom, boom, boom. But what were those clay pigeons created for? To be blasted out of the sky. They were created to be destroyed. Paul asks a very deep question in verse 22. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath... And to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Human beings will always move towards greater sin 
if God doesn't intervene with salvation or death. We will all be the Hitler, Jack the Ripper, a Jezebel, or a Bloody Mary. We ought to be rejected by God. We ought to be condemned. For our heart is desperately wicked. But for those that God has chosen to save, we need to recognize that we are to be redeemed. God has not destroyed the wicked because to do so would mean the end of the world. So God is patient in extending the fullness of his wrath, withholding it at this time. Verse 23 says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He is patient while he is waiting. Jesus described this principle in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The sower, he said, sowed good seed in the field. But an enemy went in and sowed bad seed, tares, form of, of weed in that same field. And when the plants began to grow, they grew up together, weeds and wheat. In order to have a harvest, the owner of the field waited, let them both grow up together, and then at harvest time, sorted the wheat from the tares. Jesus said that's the Father's plan. It's a plan for eternity. It is why God tolerates sin in this world, so that he has time to redeem the elect for salvation. He is the potter, determining what to do with the clay. He is determined to save some, even though all deserve his wrath. And so in conclusion, I want to ask you, do you recognize the patience of God towards sinners? Oh, we somehow think that, oh, we all deserve to be saved. No, none of us do. Not one. Yet God is being patient, offering opportunities for all to repent. But as we consider this passage, can you understand why God would cast some into hell? They have marred his creation. They have destroyed it. He is the creator. Justice must be served. And it will be. In time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a difficult passage that we have before us when we consider the fact that there is an eternity where some will be saved and some condemned. But right now, you said, today is the day of salvation. Today is the opportunity being given by you. You are being patient with us. You should destroy us. But you are being patient. And you are offering the opportunity for people to hear the good news of the gospel, whether through the Samaritan Christmas shoeboxes, or whether it is through the proclamation of the word, even now, 
here in this room or through Facebook, YouTube, and other means. But the day is coming when you will judge this world. And where those who rebel against you and continue in that rebellion will hear you say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So we ask you, Lord God, to open hearts today, open eyes, and bring many into the fold for your name's sake. As the the potter making the clay, some for honorable use. Let that be today that we see that happen, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us.